Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. Before we begin, we have to give our regular shout out to the Guild of the Rose, an organization that is helping rationalists and other rationalist adjacent people level up their rationality skills and just get better at life in general. One might say that they are doing their best to do so effectively. Definitely we would say that. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that they are doing is in early April, they have implemented a new course about decision theory with a focus on managing situations involving ruinous outcomes, where one or more of the potential outcomes involves severe negative consequences. Sounds like something that the world might be going through right now. And important for people to consider with things like ruinous things like losing a job. Some people find things like that just so terrifying as not being able to look at the monster of it. Mm, but yeah. I find that a lot of the time just forcing myself to engage with it. Okay, but what if this did happen? What would I actually do? And the answer is, you know, usually not, well, I would die because the world would end. It's like, no, I would have to manage some things differently and, and shake things about, but probably come out just fine. And that said, that's just one example. If you want actual implementable tools, check out the Guild of the Roses course on this. Absolutely. Link in the show notes as always. Yes. What, how, what are we doing today? I want to talk about, I was listening to a podcast on the drive to your house for an episode weeks and weeks or months ago. Then these two less wrong posts were about effective altruism. This wasn't at all a coincidence. I wanted to talk about an essay by Eric Hole, who wrote, Why I'm Not an Effective Altruist. Okay, shots fired already. What shots? A title like that makes me think that there's about to be some bad shit said about my, oh, my totally. friends in the victory. I've so fired shots. I've just loaded. Oh, I, haven't, no, I haven't fired no. yet. You're counting out the bullets and loading them into the clip. I'll say, in my not biased opinion, EAs are awesome and truth seeking. They had That's that, not just an opinion, that is an actual fact of the universe. I, I agree. Remember how they had that essay contest where they wanted people to submit uh, essays against their positions and they'd give like the winners like a thousand dollars? Yeah. So he also submitted this to that. So in another point in their favor, they're very receptive to criticism. Possibly a bit too receptive in my opinion. Even to their detriment, they're overly receptive to criticism, and I think there's some people that you can safely ignore. The people that, as Harry Potter says, you must be at least this smart to talk to me. <laughs> I found, after I read the essay and re-listened to the podcast and stuff, I found uh, some links we'll put in the show. One of them was this post on the Effective Altruist Forum, and then the responses from people who work there were actually, some responded explicitly in the tone that the essay was, and uh, I liked that. Nathan Young's reply, I'll just read the top of it, said, in regard to your blog, I'll write this quickly and bluntly, but I think I reflect the tone of your article, so I think that's okay. Uh, Okay. Then, you know, of course, being an awesome person, he says, uh, I'm sure we'd enjoy chatting over dinner, and I respect anyone who takes the time to write a blog. Hmm. It's just nice. So, I mean, the first part is true. Almost everyone you can have a good dinner conversation with. I just love that even, you know, in the midst of being cold, you guys are a bunch of morons simping to the dumbest idea ever. He's, (laughs) you know, Nathan's this polite in his reply to it. I want to take this kind of from the top. Why are you a fan of effective altruism? Because they're just legit good people that are trying to use their intelligence and their goodness in concert to make the world better. Not just doing it in a stupid way, but actually researching. They they have a dedication to wanting to know the truth and act upon it that if it was expanded to the entire human race, I think we would be far, far better off as a species than we are. Well put. I totally agree. I think any group that has a commitment to like, whatever, making the world a better place, I can appreciate where they're coming from. Some people really suck at that. And so like, I, I can't say I can get behind every group. But the EAA community, organization, whatever you want to call it, it's dedicated to doing the best it can and actually finding out what the best is. Malaria bed nets are not like a sexy charity, but it's like this was the flagship cause for years because it was the most bang for your buck. 
it reminds me of when I was a new atheist and I very sincerely believed that if anybody simply had a legit love of the truth and dedication to finding it, they would become an atheist eventually. So all you really had to do was infuse people with a want to know the truth and everything else would take care of itself. The EEA community is that sort of idealization of if people were to really want the truth, this is what they would come to. I prefer those kinds of people, and I feel like they are living the best world they can live in by literally pursuing the truth in that manner that I believed all humans could at one point. I love it. Do you still feel that way? If someone just cared about truth, would they become an atheist eventually? No, not necessarily. It would definitely push them away from a lot of religion, but I don't think that's enough on its own anymore. Nice. I always love just growths of opinions. <laughs> um, so... I didn't do much homework into uh, what Eric Hole does for a living. I think he's a neuroscientist. So this people who listen to this before know that I don't tend to get like angry and personal. Just keep that in mind that I think I've earned some cred to be a little, I don't want to say salty, salty. Perfect. I was going to say pissy, but that's <laughs> not that too childish. Anyway, I recommend everyone either skim the essay or listen to the interview on a econ talk or the discussion rather. It's not much of an interview. He opens up talking about the coverage that EA has been getting in recent years. This essay, by the way, was written in uh, August of 2022. It's like the second sentence. And he says, when I talk to its proponents, effective altruism, it has the aura of being almost too successful as they often mention secret internecine wars and squabbles only those on the inside care about. Maybe it's because I'm feeling uncharitable because I know where the rest of the thing is going, but isn't that literally every professional or academic field? That is literally any group of humans anywhere. Like, this is the second line, and that was it. I would normally stop reading right there. That is just the world's biggest red flag of here's a thing that happens to all humans, but it kind of sucks, so I'm going to highlight it right now because this is going to be a takedown piece. Oh, okay, I'm I'm done with you because there's nothing of value to be found here, I can tell already. I wouldn't even say that it sucks. It just means that, like, this is what happens when you're inside a group of people that talk about anything. Like, yeah. If you're um, a Harry Potter fan club, you're going to have shorthands for, oh, that's such a Slytherin thing to say. This is just groups. But all right, let's, let's get to the meat. He starts with an analogy to Bertrand Russell's 1927 lecture, Why I'm Not a Christian, which, yes. speaking of the new atheism wars, ever good atheist has read. I never read it. I'm sure I read it. If not the whole thing, I've read parts of it, because this, this part definitely sounded familiar. Because so, so much of the anti-atheist rhetoric was like, well, how can you be good without religion or whatever? He takes a paragraph and then swaps out effective altruist instead of Christian. So I'll just read one sentence of it or two. I do not mean by an effective altruist, any person who tries to live decently according to his lights. I think that you must have a certain amount of definite belief before you have a right to call yourself an effective altruist. The line there, I don't think any person who tries to live decently as an EA, you have to have a certain amount of definite belief before you have a right to call yourself an EA. I feel like only someone who's an EA should be able to make that claim, that you have to have a certain amount of definite beliefs before you have a right to call yourself one. Eh, I don't know. I think other people are allowed to say that kind of thing. Um, I mean, it'd be weird for me to go to a church and be like, you guys aren't allowed to call yourself Christians unless you're stoning adulteresses to death. Yes, the Christians would probably have words with you on that. But on the other hand, I entirely reserve the right to say that the average person who's never heard of Christ and is trying to live a good life, I would not say that they are a Christian. You have to at least have heard of Jesus and believe he is the son of God in order to be called a Christian. That's fair. I think. <laughs> yeah, okay. Treating your neighbor as you would treat yourself is a thing Jesus said, but just someone who follows the golden rule isn't necessarily a Christian. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah. I think he's right there. Just trying to be 
a bit more effective with your altruism doesn't necessarily make you a capital letter effective altruist. I use myself as an example here because I don't consider myself an effective altruist, despite the fact that I'm pretty close to the community. I've written a couple things that have won effective altruism awards. I don't consider myself very effective nor very altruistic in the same way that they are. I would have serious doubts about anyone calling themselves an effective altruist if they haven't taken the giving what we can pledge. And I have not taken that pledge. So therefore, I don't feel like I can claim a right to that title. All right, fair enough. I guess I feel more of an EA having seen the community spat at this way than I did before reading this essay slash hearing that podcast. Now I'm more firmly in their camp than I was before because you were such a dick to them and I'm sympathetic to their position. But I give to charity, but I don't actually give 10%. Right. Part of me is still has been like, oh, I'm you know hemming and hawing while stuff with the house and stuff settled and all that. But mm-hmm. I, I could do more. I, everyone could always do more, right? Like that's the thing is... Will McCaskill donates everything above like 26,000 pounds a year. That's why they set the limit at 10%, because everyone could always do more. Right. He's also kind of just like the flagship example, and I think that he probably gets someone else to comp his hotel rooms at conferences or something, right? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, not everyone could do that. This essay basically isn't even an essay against effective altruism, which is the stupidest thing about it. It says why I'm not an effective altruist, but it should be uh, titled why I'm not a utilitarian. All of it is just against utilitarianism. He says, It is because it is based on initially flawed reasoning that when taken literally leads to immoral outcomes. That's big if it's true, and I was looking forward to hearing his arguments about what the initially flawed reasoning that the effective altruists have is that leads to immoral outcomes, but it's just utilitarianism. Worse than that, it's the, I've read three essays about utilitarianism, and I don't like it, understanding of utilitarianism, which... Great. Yeah, th- thank you. I think that maybe why this got under my skin so much is it's like he's hitting a goalpost that is not even at the center of the field here. Are most EAs consequentialists? Sure. I'd have to think about that specific question longer to wonder like if you could be an effective altruist and not be a consequentialist. But I don't know what it means to be an effective, effectively altruistic deontologist. Mine and Hole's disagreement here can be entirely attributed to us having different understandings of what utilitarianism is and how much we think EAs dogmatically adhere to every absurd reducto. Especially given the way that he phrases them. He uses such intense vitriolic language. The origins of the effective altruistic movement in utilitarianism means that as definitions get more specific, it becomes clear that within lurks a poison, and that the choice of all effective altruists is to either dilute the poison and therefore dilute the philosophy, or swallow the poison whole. Mm. His whole critique hinges on repugnant conclusions of the reducto ad absurdums of utilitarianism. At least once or twice he mentions the rogue surgeon who kills people for their organs. This is not a knockdown argument that has bowled over utilitarianism that we've all just bitten the bullet on and accepted, yep, that's the defeating argument. And it's not like we've just ignored it. It's like, no, that's actually not, that's not a real problem here. He mentions a few times, like, I've talked to lots of people. Like, who has he been talking to? <sighs> we had um, Adam uh, Mastrioni on last episode. Like I said there, I'm, I'm a big fan of talking to the person if we can. And I thought about reaching out to this guy, but I, I feel like at the very least, I want to get some of this out of my system first. I, I, I could be level-headed and polite, but I, it would be difficult for me if he's saying shit. It's like so not even wrong. I, I, I pulled a few things, but I will get to them when we get to them. So let's, let's keep going then. Yeah. Well, you had one here that says, oh man, if this boils down to, I don't like utilitarianism, I'm going to be so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, you're I disappointed. W- <laughs> yep. Alas. 
He says, the same math, he says, nobody whose natural sympathies who have not been worked by dogma could maintain that it is right and proper that the state of things should continue. The poison of, for utilitarianism is that it forces its believers to such repugnant conclusions that considering an organ harvesting serial killer morally correct. What I don't get is, you know, like he says, the poison for utilitarianism is that it forces its believers to such repugnant conclusions. I guess, first off, does utilitarianism have believers? What the fuck does that even mean? Adherence, oh, maybe, but and I don't want to like quibble on the definition, but like believer sounds like, no, I'm going to take these claims and uh, just trust them. Am I a believer in evolution? I don't think so. Like, it's, I believe it's, it's, I believe it's correct. Or am I quibbling too much because I'm mad? <laughs> yeah, it's a wonky word, but I think I'm willing to let him have it. There isn't a much better word for someone who accepts that this moral theory is correct and should guide some of our decisions. I guess except for those words, but that's more syllables. <laughs> yes. That's how I would put it. Like, I guess, yeah, you could substitute other stuff. Believers in the golden rule or something. Yeah. Yeah, okay. The serial killing surgeon. He talks about hanging out with philosophers all the time, but his whole discussion is reminiscent of, you remember speaking of the New Atheism Wars, remember Ken Ham, mega church guy, I think he had like this kind of cool beard. He'd point to the picture of the monkeys and be like, did your grandfather look like that? <laughs> I do remember this guy. Yes. He had the uh, the Ark. I think oh it's still God, up. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. In yeah. Arkansas, I think. Wait, maybe I, just, okay. maybe I just think it was in Arkansas because that's where I would build an Ark. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so that guy. Hull's argument, and especially in like lines like this, come off with all of the same like self righteous superiority and like smug triumphant nodding to himself. He's overturned centuries knowing, of thought and progress with these little debunkings, and not knowing at all what the actual arguments are. I guess first of all, no one that I've ever met in real life, or I think even heard of, is a died in the wool consequences all the way down. If I could get away with serial murder, I totally would do it because it's the right thing to do. Even Will McCaskill talks about balancing other values. I disagree with the idea that there's such a thing as, as a utilitarian as pure as he's talking about. But even if there was, you know why they don't go around serial murdering? Like, why doesn't this happen? Why is that? Because they would go to jail. Um, like, if you, if you yes, got caught, you go to jail, not... and, that, and then you've eliminated all the good you can do for the rest of your life. Well, okay. That's one that's reason why this... people don't. <laughs> it's like saying, I can't go around telling people that the sun is the center of the universe because the church would put me in jail if I did. It doesn't make Galileo wrong just because he would get put in jail if he tried to say what he actually believed. No, no. But like the, the long-term thinking consequentialist would say, well, look, I can save five lives if I do this murder, or mm -hmm. I can save hundreds of lives over the course of my lifetime if I don't go to prison. Right. But they would also say that I could save tens of thousands of lives over the course of my lifetime if it wasn't for this stupid society holding me down. Oh, okay. I see. It's just like you, half of his stuff hinges on, on arguments like the rogue surgeon or how gross it is to flip the switch on the trolley problem or something. These are not points that are unaddressed. Again, this is like with Ken Ham pointing at the picture of the monkey. It's like, look, this is not something we haven't considered. You're just wrong. The rogue surgeon is very akin to, to someone being like, where does the universe come from then? We talked about this over 200 years ago. Right. Like, you're, you're not on the cutting edge. We've long moved past the rogue surgeon thing. Well, I mean, you know, if we're descended from monkeys, then why are there still monkeys? I feel like this art, this was written in good faith. He submitted it to the EA forum. It, it's just, I wonder what the heck was going on. And that's part of why I wanted to talk about this. Not just to rant something that actually made me really mad, but like, maybe we can actually figure out what the hell he's talking about. Especially because of like the weird 180 he does at the end. Wasn't it kind of surprising? We, I mean, we, we can talk about it when we get yeah. to it. All right.
I do like that he he says this kind of thing a lot. To see the inevitability of the repugnant conclusion, I'm like, yes, totes inevitable, much despair. <laughs> <laughs> Sad doge meme. It's just constantly things like that. Yes, inevitably, you must kill five innocent people to save 50 innocent people. This is just how it goes. I, I googled around less wrong for a few minutes, but I couldn't find the line where Yudkowsky says that utilitarianism is not for humans. It, you know, it is a morality for gods. Yeah, exactly, right? A weaker version of it is for us. In fact, I I work with an analogy that Hole himself makes here in, in the post further down, but like, all right, all of that sounds well and good. Who would he's talking about the drowning child in a pond analogy of Peter Singer's? Who would not soil their clothes or pay the equivalent of a dry cleaning bill to save a drowning child? But when taken literally, it leads very quickly to repugnancy. <laughs> First, there's already a lot of charity money flowing, right? And I'm like, citation needed. <laughs> Depends on what you mean by a lot. And charity money, I guess. Yeah. You know, if, if you don't include Do you- tithing. So let's put a pin in that one. But he says, why give $5 to your local opera when it go to saving a life in Bengal? In fact, isn't it a moral crime to give to your local opera house instead of to saving children? This is something that they used a lot in the podcast with uh, him and Russ Roberts. They talked about moral imperative, moral crime. And I, I never hear anyone talk like this. Even Yudkowsky talking about it in terms of here's the obviously right thing to do. He doesn't say moral crime. I read my share of utilitarian philosophy, and I don't remember the words moral crime coming up a lot, but especially like the idea of why give $5 to your local opera when it, when it will go to saving a life in Bengal? Why indeed? Because your local yeah. opera house really needs your $5 more than this kid needs a glass of water. Are you kidding? It was really interesting. He actually argued that an opera house that some rich people use a few hours a month is a better use of $5 than feeding children. And I was like, okay, I guess you could make that argument. I wonder how he does. And then he never does. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are some things that I say that are kind of on that spectrum in it might actually be worth more to give more money for less value to your community around you than it is to save a life on the other side of the world. That is something I'm starting to think maybe has some truth to it. But there'd be a long chain of justification as to why that might be true. I would not at all expect to simply be able to assert that my local movie theater, I would rather give $5 to help patch up some paint on it than to save a life in Africa and expect people to just be like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Because th- that's dumb. Yeah, you got to show and- your work. Unless you want to just say that any work showing is impossible and frankly immoral and repugnant, then you don't have to show your work. <laughs> yes, it inevitably re- leads to a horrible conclusion if you show your work. Yeah. He comes out in the next paragraph is incredibly pro-NIMBY. He literally says it's better for rich people to hike than for the rest of the population to have housing. Is the joy of rich people hiking really worth the equivalent of all the lives that could be stuffed into that land if it were converted to high-yield automated hydroponic farms and sprawling apartment complexes? And his position is that, yeah, it's good to keep people out of cities, make it impossible to live anywhere because... There's going to be some rich people there that enjoy hiking more than, you know, people needing places to live. And more than people will like living somewhere. Uh, yeah. I, I like this. Shit. This was one of the, like, again, Nathan Young wrote the reply here on Effective Altruism Forum. He goes through and kind of just grabs a handful of claims and then replies to them. Nathan says, this is not an EA view. It's a personal one. But if there are a billion Americans, the U.S. would be less dense than the U.K. It'd be far less dense than England. There isn't a trade-off here. But if there were, I'd still lose the views and let billions have the lives we have. Is living in Tokyo so bad? No. Vacation summer, people don't want to work so badly. If we argue it out, I think I can convince you that wanting to keep immigrants out to preserve landscapes 
which wouldn't be built on anyway, isn't actually a monstrous view. (laughs) (laughs) I I liked that a lot because it's like the implication of what he's saying here is hyper nimbyism. Sure, we could house all of these, you know, refugees, but no, we need the unobstructed view of the national park. It's absurd. But I am getting carried away with my, I'm going to count on you to try and keep me um, centered if I get ranty or ragey. Okay. Uh, Or you can even just point it out and be like, okay, yeah, you're right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I will try. No pressure. But they talk about, or he talks rather about uh, arbitraging good. I can leverage money here instead of here. I don't quite get why that's ever a bad thing, but he seems to think it is. Maybe there's some economic reason or something that that's bad in principle. He talks about uh, Sam Bankman Freed, but Thankfully, I think this is all before that shit hit the fan, just because I feel like it's a huge red herring. Every point of EA stands whether or not Sam Bankman-Fried was eating babies. I want to talk about that when we get down to the Sam Bankman-Fried thing. Okay. But he says, what precisely is the reason not to arbitrage all the good in the world like this, such that all resources go to saving human life and making more room for it rather than anything else? So he's doing two things here. One, I don't know if he thinks he's being clever or if he's doing this on accident, but slipping in maximize the number of humans with make human lives better. Those are two different goals. Yes. Radically different goals that people talk about as very distinct problems. If he engaged at all about the work here, he'd understand that. But also for real, what precisely is the reason to spend money in your local opera house instead of feeding starving kids? You don't need to justify opera. It's a utility monster. It justifies itself. I'm glad you mentioned utility monsters because he comes up with that. <laughs> such, such as the It's plot. almost like I had read ahead. Oh man. Such as a flaw of why the idea of utility monsters originally introduced by Robert Nozick, is so devastating for utilitarianism. I like adding Oh, I'm devastated. Yeah. (laughs) It it crushed us. It's like not finding the missing link bones that just overthrew evolution. I'm as devastated as one of my girlfriends on a Friday night. Right. (laughs) But utility monsters, they take us from our local circumstances to very different worlds in which monsters derive more pleasure and joy from eating humans than humans suffer from being eaten. And most people find this pro-monster-eating humans position repugnant. I said, such is a flaw, what is so devastating for these evolutionists. They simply don't understand that their grandparents weren't monkeys. If we could just show them their grandparents and they had observed that they weren't monkeys, they'd see how wrong they are. Part of me wonders if I'm being uncharitable because like, I feel like I'm taking pot shots that I did when I was a teenager making fun of this guy. But it seems like he's just lining himself up for it. Here's the thing. He's absolutely lining himself up for it. He deserves all of this. This is stupid. This is the I am 14 and this is deep kind of level of argumentation. (laughs) This is not a serious argument. What I am worried about, though, is that we are targeting a weak man. It is always easy to, like, find some idiot on Twitter who just says the dumbest shit in the world and then ragging on them endlessly It feels good. It feels like you're propping up your side because you're like, look, this is the best arguments the other side has. Isn't it ridiculous? Isn't that shit? And then the people who actually believe that seriously on the other side are like, what the fuck are you talking about? We we don't believe that. Stop trying to straw man us. Then on our side, we say, we're not straw manning you. This is an actual person that said these actual things. That's not a straw man. It's a real man. Then that side is like, okay. Yes, you found an idiot willing to say dumb things. This is the internet. There's millions of those. This is not actually the best representation of our argument. And you're being uncharitable and a bad arguer by singling him out. Why don't you come at some of our good arguments? I totally support that. Yeah, that is the kind of thing I want to do. And so by reading this and going after this, I'm worried that we're doing the weak manning thing. This is just obviously very bad from my position. I don't know. But then you said that... He's been on, um, what was the podcast? Econ Talk? Econ Talk. 
which is that's that's actually a fairly well known podcast. It's fairly well known. It's been around for at least fifteen years. Sam Harris has been on the podcast. He's been on Sam Harris's podcast. Uh, yeah, I was like, who is this guy, and why should we care about anything he says? Is he just a random Twitter anon? But apparently, he is actually sort of. He was on the Forbes 30 under 30 in science list when I Googled him. I don't know if that's actually impressive or not. Like, I like the name Forbes. That's a magazine I've heard of. (laughs) But on the other hand, maybe they were scrimping for content and they're like, well, we found 23 under 30, but that doesn't sound even. Can we put seven more in here? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if this is like, if we are being uncharitable by criticizing this argument. And I I don't want to do that. But on the other hand, maybe he does speak for a lot of people. 190 people liked the post at the bottom, which means at least 192 people have read it. (laughs) This probably had a wider readership than that. And you're right. You articulated perfectly why I hate, why fewer things bug me more than a bad argument for a position I agree with. This happens to be a position I disagree with. But if I was pro EA and someone said some of these points or something, right? They're actually propping up some of these straw men that this guy's knocking down. I'd be like, look, shut up, man. You're making all the wrong points. There are good reasons to believe this. Yeah. <laughs> there are good reasons to act this way. By being out there and saying all these dumb things, you're making us all look like idiots. So I want to be mindful of that. I don't think these are the best arguments against EA. They do talk about him a bit in the podcast. I mean, because Russ put, he doesn't quite push back because he like totally agrees with them, I think. But he, mm-hmm. he does ask some some cross-examination. Mm-hmm. But then he kind of just like agrees with every answer. I listened to it again. And actually, I did like I stopped for a few hours yesterday and then went back to finishing it because I, I it's just like it, it was like, oh, this fucking guy. In I fact, do think this is oh. one of the reasons that the EA forums like do give prizes of thousands of dollars for essays that are good, that are not weak men, because it sometimes takes a lot of effort to find the good arguments and push back against them instead of just having lots of weak men thrown at you. You don't give money to the weak men arguments. No, I think you're right. As far as is this guy just, you know, one random blogger, the fact that Russ Roberts was agreeing with him makes me suggest that at least he's not all that much of an outlier of people who disagree with the EA approach. It's at least evidence for that. Okay. Because Russ Russ Roberts is somewhat sane. I think he is a practicing religious person, but aside from that. This thing that he's doing where he's bringing up utility monsters and the repugnant conclusion and the serial killing surgeon and all this stuff, the whole, if you take these ideas seriously, then it leads to horrific consequences. This can be applied to literally everything and has been applied to literally everything. It's literally, if there is no God, everything is permitted in its most classic form. And unless you are a seriously believing Christian or other strong theist of some kind, I think you understand why if there is no God, everything is permitted is ridiculous bullshit. You can't just turn it around and be like, oh, but if there is utilitarianism, then everything is permitted. That's not a good argument for the exact same reasons. Thank you. I agree. I've had people argue to me that because basic physics implies causality, that it strips life of all meaning and reduces us to automata and means that we cannot punish crime. If this causality thing is real, then you can't blame people for anything they do. And therefore, we can't punish people for things like, no, that's stupid and ridiculous. Punishments are part of causality. Everything boils down to normality in the end. Are you high? This is just how I feel about these sorts of arguments like this. What a weird stance. to. I mean, so I I understand, you know, if you're coming to grips with determinism or whatever, you have to wrestle with the question of what do we do with people who do bad things? It changes the motivation for why you prison people. Sure. You don't do it because they're bad people who deserve it. You do it to deter other people's motivation to commit crimes and or to remove dangerous people from from society and or Mm -hmm. hopefully to reform them. Let's send you off to a nice vacation where you get to talk with some therapists and get your shit together. And then you come back and be a happier civil person. So, yeah. 
some of the stuff, as egregious as some of these are, he didn't have a few of the lines in here that were in the podcast. We're going to insert a soundbite from the episode if no one wants to listen to the whole thing right here. Killing animal wildlife is sort of bad, right? Like when we clear a forest and make way for a parking lot, we kill a lot of animals and that's really bad. But, you know, McCaskill is able to sort of somehow personally calculate out the average suffering of animals. And he finds that animals generally often suffer. And he thinks that the suffering of animals outweighs sort of the the positive aspects of being an animal. That is, if you had to choose between, according to William McCaskill, not being born and being born a rabbit, you would choose not being born because rabbits often suffer. And so from that, you know, utilitarian uh, sort of notion, he then says that actually maybe we arrive at, quote, the dizzying conclusion that from the perspective of wild animals themselves, the enormous growth and expansion of Homo sapiens has been a good thing. And to be clear, what he means by that is that there are now less wild animals because there are more humans and their lives are worth negative value. Were you able to grok that over the uh, airwaves? Yeah, he's talking about the problem of wild animal suffering. Yeah, the the part that like there's a, a great clip from American Dad where they're driving a killdozer to like the headquarters of the paper football team because mm-hmm. they sent back like a thanks but no thanks letter when they when they wrote in like some suggestions for the team. And then like, <laughs> okay. because, because it's across the country and the thing goes like 10 miles an hour, they're like worn out. And it's like, yeah. oh, hand me another five hour energy. My rage is dipping. Should I just read the letter mm-hmm. again? Oh, yeah, let's do that. Dear Smiths, those motherfuckers. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, awesome. So that, that's the bit there where he says, Will McCaskill is somehow personally able to calculate how much these animals suffer. Mm. That is the most disingenuous bullshit that I, I mean, that is. Yeah, that is so straight up lying. It's lying, but it's like it's done in such an unfair way. And I didn't read Will McCaskill's book, but I've heard the guy talk about it for hours. And I know just from the fact that he's a respected, smart person that he's not a fucking idiot. And so he's not saying I did it, guys. I calculated how much bunnies suffered. Um, (laughs) So for him to say that he's able to somehow personally calculate this, I was going to just quote that, but I didn't want to make it sound like I was putting words in his mouth. That was the kind of like the tone of this whole thing is like, Somehow, Neil deGrasse Tyson personally is able to divine the age of the universe, and we're supposed to believe him. It's not quite that exact argument, but it, it sounds so similar. And it's like, no, nah, man, there's actually an answer to the age of the universe, and it's it's corroboratable. But what I know that Will wasn't doing was saying that, yeah, I figured out how much animals suffer, and it's it's uh, 37. And building parking lots where there used to be rabbits is actually a net positive because you get positive utils from parking there. He was doing what philosophers do. He was painting a thought experiment and having an interesting time with it. I'm, I'm willing to bet that this was done in the, in the case of a thought experiment, not, not as like a um, policy proposal. Have you ever read Scott Alexander's arguments from my opponent believes something? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, but I, I would love, give me the, the down low. It's a list of arguments that start with argument from my opponent believes something. Argument from my opponent believes something, which means they believe it is the answer to one question, which is kind of like believing it is the answer to all questions, but it isn't. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Bunch of shit like this. Argument from my opponent believes something, which is kind of like believing it on faith, which is kind of like them being a religion. It feels very much like that, that Will McCaskill believes wild animal suffering, wild animals may on net have bad awful lives and therefore dot 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 yeah it, it argument from my opponent believe something which is kind of like believing it blindly with 100 certainty this is spot on we'll link to this too i can't believe i read this but in my defense this is uh june 13th 2013 it'll oh, turn man, 10 next 10 month. years now yeah. jesus
Here's a great analogy in Hull's essay that I liked. He says, to give a metaphor, Newtonian physics works really well as long as all you're doing is approximating cannonballs and calculating weight loads and things like that. But it's not good for understanding the movements of galaxies or what happens inside a semiconductor. Newtonian physics is true, quote unquote, if the situation is constrained and simple enough for it to apply to. And so too it is with utilitarianism. This is the etiology of the poison. Hmm. Without that last line in there, I think that's a, actually a great analogy. He was so close to understanding something <laughs> just for a second there. And then he let it slip right through his fingers. If you're a person wanting to live your life and wanting to do good, Newtonian physics in this analogy is perfectly sufficient. If you want to be an all-powerful god or make one, we'd better hope your understanding of physics is better than Newton's. Yeah. I, I love that metaphor. Just like how we can actually get by winning baseball games without... Actually, you don't have to know physics to win baseball games, but we can, we can whatever, make computer games of baseball with just simulated physics, but we don't simulate particle physics to do it. This is the level that we operate at as humans on our scale. He did the same thing in the, the episode two of Econ Talk. He quote mined Zukowski after going out of his way to saying he respects and appreciates Zukowski on stuff like AI risk. He's genuine, I think, and he sounds like he's uh, really defending that in uh, his talk with uh, Russ Roberts. He quote minds the dust specs thing, although in this one it's hiccups versus uh, shark attack. If he had just kept reading and not quote mind, he would have found somewhere, I'll have to find the post, but it wasn't in the same one where he makes this argument. This isn't how humans work, but this is the math. Yeah. But we don't care if, if we occasionally get hiccups a couple times a year. It's only a minor inconvenience. Hiccups are totally incomparable to this girl being eaten alive. Please save the girl, is how people would reply to this thought experiment. The response have come this way because most people recognize that the evil, quote unquote, of a, of a hiccup is not qualitatively the same kind of evil as feeding a little girl to a shark. In the same way that the good of putting on warm socks is not the same as the good of saving a little girl from, uh, of saving a little girl from sharks. But the utilitarian, veins coursing with the swallowed poison, must say <laughs> back to the people of the planet, your votes are driven by your feelings, shut up and multiply, and then drops the girl. I'm willing to totally grant that there are qualitatively different kinds of suffering. I don't think anyone really would disagree with that. And that's the annoying thing, too. In the conversation with, with Russ, he t they keep talking about Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill and stuff. Like, they were the last words on utilitarianism instead of the first, and therefore, like, probably least accurate. Or at least mm -hmm. refined anyway. They were great, actually, I think. But, you know, anyway, the, yeah. um, like, okay, fine. There are qualitatively different kinds of suffering. I'm willing to grant that. Like, I'm sympathetic to it. But if that's the case, take a harder example and don't knock down the easy to win one and act like you've defeated the entire school of thought. Like, Google of stubbed toes, slaps to the face, like, broken hearts. You know, if you're going to pretend that one person being eaten by a shark is worse than, than a Google people suffering from heartbreak because it's qualitatively different, then it seems like his reasoning is at least as insane as he's claiming Yukowski's to be. It's interesting. In your notes here, you have billions of people suffering from heartbreak. I saw you upgraded it to a Google just now, but I think I think billions is easier to quantify because I can actually I know what billions means. Billions is like a large fraction of the entire world population, and a heartbreak really sucks. Yeah, like especially extended heartbreak. People and, die over it. Yeah, and I I'm literally willing to say that it might be better to feed a person to a shark to avoid billions of people suffering from heartbreak. I think certainly billions, right? I mean, I'd have to think a little bit more on it, but intuitively that seems correct. We can murder the thought experiment as much as we want, but like I'm not sure what what the suicide rate is for people who are severely heartbroken, but it's it's non-zero. Yeah. Um the feeding thing is kind of hard because it ends a life. Yeah. I mean, you think maybe one in 10,000 people from heartbreak end their lives? I mean, one, one in 100,000? Probably. That would be 70,000 people compared to the one person being eaten by a shark. 
even if you're just looking at the number of dead people, which seem like they're qualitatively the same. They're the same kind of evil. Yeah, if, even if you're just counting corpses. In the podcast, he talks about basically imagining noodles as like grains of sand. Here's a single grain of sand of the bad variety. It's a hiccup. And here's a giant mountain. It's the Holocaust. The claim here is, is that if you add up enough of these hiccups, they get to be a taller mountain than the, the mountain of the Holocaust. I find myself not convinced that like saving functionally infinite number of people from hiccups would be worth a Holocaust. But if it's clear from the fact that he's getting so much of the like basic philosophy elementary wrong, or at least it doesn't engage with anything beyond like the entry level stuff. If that wasn't clear enough reason uh, to suggest that he's not like very well-versed and enthusiastic about philosophy, his bad arguing is. So the hiccups case, you know, sure. But like, then just pick a harder one. I think it's appropriate in the less wrong post that we're going to read later on in the episode. Eliezer does point out that oftentimes people want things to not be commensurate because as humans, we try to get out of shit sometimes. <laughs> Weaseling our way out of things is what separates man from the animals, except for the weasel. <laughs> so, you know, somebody starts saying, look, enough hiccups makes a holocaust. And then you think, all right, why aren't you trying to make excuses to start a holocaust? This is very sus here. I'm just going to err on the side of no hiccups ever make a holocaust. There's darned good reason, I guess, for humans to be like, you know what? I'm not going to agree that enough hiccups are worse than a Holocaust because I'm worried about Holocaust results. But in greater terms that we will get to later, they might be measurable and uh, comparable. No, I agree. I, I love that just so no one thinks I'm actually, I actually have any idea what I'm doing. The less wrong posts are actually a total coincidence and they're perfectly apropos for this episode. I'm looking forward to getting to those as, as a fortunately timed rebuttal to a lot of these arguments. <laughs> Um, we were originally going to do an episode on something else entirely, but I completely flubbed it and I was feeling awful. I'm like, Stephen, God, please help me. And Stephen's like, well, actually, I have an awesome thing to talk about. And uh, it just happens to coincide with the posts this week. Yeah, we, we got backlogs. This has been grinding my gears. I don't know if I heard this when it was new or shortly thereafter, mm. but I remember I was driving to your house and the weather was nice. So it must have been before the winter. So Damn. this has been on my like on my angry back burner for a little while. So it's nice to yeah. get it out of my system. I liked your, yeah. uh, what the utilitarian doesn't understand. <laughs> oh my God. Whenever I read something like that, I, I, again, another big red flag, because it's basically what my hated outgroup doesn't understand is statement. And I don't think there's ever been a what my hated outgroup doesn't understand statement that has aged well. <laughs> because eventually the rot at the core of such a statement is revealed. When you hear what the Chinaman doesn't understand, followed by something racist, maybe sounded appropriate in the 1920s, but uh, give it 100 years and people are like, oh, I see what, what was behind that. Or even just say it at present day to an audience of people who knows what they're talking about. You yeah. know, what the evolutionist yeah. doesn't understand is that the time scales that they would need for this, for this proposed mechanism to make, make humans would take billions of years, but the Earth is only 10,000 years old. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, oh, right, we didn't understand that part. Shucks. It's always the words you say right before you're going to straw man someone. Yeah, you're right. I don't know if anyone's ever said, what insert group doesn't understand, and then like gave a really strong argument. <laughs> someone someone tag me on Discord if they can like even just make one up. That sounds like funny to read. We were not at all disappointed because his actual statement is, what the utilitarian doesn't understand is that people's feelings are not just random feelings. <laughs> the utilitarian <laughs> has spoken many, many, many times about the fact that people's feelings are not just random feelings. How can you possibly have read anything by a utilitarian ever and make that statement? I don't know. I love it. And they, th there is a point to be made here, but mm -hmm. that doesn't set himself up to make it with any strength. You're right. Our feelings do come from somewhere. And actually, that stuff is pretty important. 
there's a reason we find it icky to pull to throw the person in front of the in front of the trolley rather than just pull the switch. And yeah. maybe we should hear those feelings out. Maybe not listen to them all the way all the time because a lot mm-hmm. of our feelings are fucking stupid, and we should we should work to expunge them. <laughs> yes, things such as insert race is inferior to mine. That's a very natural feeling that every human society on the planet has had, and mm-hmm. it's something that good societies get rid of. It we is just blindly follow our feelings. We hear them out and wonder what was going on there, and then we decide whether or not to reject them because they're good or bad. The reason that I would feel weird throwing somebody in front of a train rather than just pulling the switch is because of a weird monkey-brained impulse I have that hands-on murdering somebody is bad, and I'm kind of okay leaning into that feeling. Like I'm going to just take my monkey, bra- yeah, I'm going to take my monkey brain's word for it and not dull that impulse to not kill people. Right. <laughs> Indeed, think how incredibly lucky we would have to be to live in a universe where every possible situation could be judged via a knowable, finite algorithm as more or less moral than every other possible situation. And furthermore, that comparing these situations involves mere addition and subtraction, multiplication and division. Such a belief almost necessitates Platonism or perhaps even divine creation. I don't know where the hell... The are the true creationists. Right. I don't know what the hell he's even getting at here. I, I know what point he's trying to make, but he's making it, again, in such a weird way. We can make it a lot easier than, than the absurdly high standards he seems to think we need. Is it better to donate, donate $10,000 to ALS research or to mosquito bed nets? Those are the kinds of algorithms with addition and subtraction that we're actually running with. Yeah. I don't know how many people suffer from ALS. I know that they made a ton of money after that ice bucket challenge, so that's awesome. How cool would it have been if that was a mosquito bed net challenge, though? That would have been awesome. I yeah. mean, it, it would have been, don't get me wrong. I hope everyone with ALS is cured and that nobody ever has to suffer from it. I want everyone to live happily and forever. But the, the number of people with ALS is drastically less than the number of kids who die every year from malaria. That would be the coolest challenge, too. Dude, you get two friends with some mosquito bed nets and they run circles around you to wrap you all up in the bed net. And then you got to try to fight your way out of the bed net. And we call that the mosquito bed net challenge. (laughs) Right. And we can say this is what it feels like when you're trying to escape malaria cursing through your blood and making you unable to move or do anything with your life until you die from it. Were you ever ice bucketed? No. Me either. No one ever tagged me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember if I got tagged or not, but uh, I I knew as soon as I saw it that I was like, this is dumb and I'm not going to do it to me. It was some dignified British person. I'm pretty sure it was Patrick Stewart. He got the ice bucket challenge. And you see him get like a bucket of ice like one has at a hotel room. Mm -hmm. And then he he pours a glass of whiskey. He picks up the ice bucket. (laughs) And then he picks out an ice cube, puts it in his glass, and then just cheers. I can't remember if that ended with him showing the check that he was writing or not. But he's like, I'm not doing the bucket, but I'll I'll write a check. Sure. That's definitely the better challenge. So we get to Sam Bankman-Fried here. Yes, we do. He name checks Sam Bankman-Fried. So this... Must have come out before the FTX implosion. I checked the date on it, and I was like, oh, yeah, just a few weeks before, in fact. I knew uh, it was close. I'm really glad. Again, not because I didn't want to engage with this intense knockdown argument or whatever, but because I find the whole thing a distraction. I found it kind of interesting because this post is all about naive utilitarianism is really bad, and that's why I'm not an effective altruist. And we had an episode, <laughs> or maybe just a rant for like a half hour before an episode or something, Uh, precisely about why naive utilitarianism is, in fact, bad and stupid and results in terrible shit like FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. It is not actual utilitarianism. It is excuses for doing what you want to do anyway. Like, if your utilitarian calculation ends up destroying a ton of utility, then you're doing utilitarianism wrong, is one of the conclusions we came to. Pretty much every argument that Eric has given us so far is basically, this thing ends up destroying a ton of utility, and therefore it is bad. And we're like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't destroy tons of utility, Eric. Yeah, that, that's that been my reply, because I, I don't have a hard ethos 
I just do the best I can with what I've got. You know, if I'm making yeah. an important decision, then then it's time to pull up my thinking cap and try and, you know, do my best. That was always a lot of the counter arguments to, to consequentialism was like, well, look at how bad this would be. And it's like, yeah, then that's not what they would do. If the argument is, look at the terrible outcome, it's like, oh, one of these people cares about outcomes. It's the utilitarians, right? So they probably wouldn't <laughs> yeah. do that thing that leads to the terrible outcome. Then you get in like those weird edge cases, you know, because he, he uses the word repugnant 32 times in this essay. The repugnant conclusion of billions and billions of barely happy or barely subsisting humans is one repugnant conclusion. But population ethics is a whole complicated thing. And guess sure. what? It's not a settled question that like we're all, you know, every utilitarian is aiming to get as many barely happy people as possible. I think that's actually pretty rare. Right. It, well, yeah, it's it's super rare. It's an open area of conversation because it's not clearly settled. Population ethics is complicated. It's so weird that in an essay called Why I'm Not an Effective Altruist, we're just talking about utilitarianism rather than effective altruism. And especially because like you're not a utilitarian, I'm not even really a utilitarian either. I'm sort of in that rule utilitarianism and virtue ethics are basically the same thing, in my opinion, assuming we don't go with the stupid mystical virtue ethics uh, that decide just these X number of virtues <laughs> are the things that we must maximize forever. And yet still, I'm like, this This is dumb. Yeah, the reason that he's not an, an effective altruist is because he thinks that they're all utilitarians and that all util and that utilitarianism is, is insane. He could summarize that in a tweet. He didn't have to write an essay. We can just say you're wrong on all three points straight naive act utilitarianism is insane and that's why we don't believe that and very few people actually hold to that and again that's why i'm pretty sure just willing to bet before reading that the rabbit and human civilization destroying the environment uh, example in will mccaskill's book is a thought experiment because like that that's how that's how philosophy books are written they always have an area of exploration of like wouldn't this be interesting it sure would be crazy if this I remember speaking of all the echoes here of the new atheism stuff. There's a line in The End of Faith where Sam Harris, if you quote mine properly, can be seen to be advocating a nuclear first strike on the Middle East mm, okay. because of the dangerous religion over there. That just happened to Eliezer a few weeks ago. Oh, all right. I got to hear about yeah. this in a second. But the, oh. point, the point is, is that in, in The End of Faith, it's set up with enough conditions that haven't been met yet. And then at the end, he says, this is all perfectly insane, of course. Mm. But no one ever finishes the sentence. They just cut off right before that. What was this with Yudkowsky? Oh, nuclear first strike on what? Data centers? Yeah, not a thing he said, and yet a lot of people like to pretend that he did. I mean, I, I could actually imagine him making that argument, but just not publicly. Um, okay. I could imagine a not insane version of that argument. I would rather have the data center where all these things are be nuked and the surrounding area decimated. Again, we talked about we'd rather have Dr. Manhattan situation than I'll be turned to goo. Yeah. So this, this I suppose if there was no other way to get to the data center and it was going to destroy the Earth, then yes. Yeah, this would essentially but, just be Ozymandias seeing it, not Dr. Manhattaning it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think pretty much almost any human on Earth would say, yes, if there's a place that's about to end the Earth and we can make it not end the Earth by nuking it, then we should nuke it. I honestly don't know if Eric Hole or Russ Roberts would say that. Really? Because they, they, they would rather have the Earth end. I so I don't want to put words in their mouth, and that that sounds so insane. But everything that they're saying seems to imply that True. these are qualitatively different things. We can't we can't murder a city. So what if every city on Earth we murdered instead? We well, can't sully our hands with it. Well, okay, but that sounds like an argument that Eric Hole would make about utilitarianism, and I don't want to Eric Hole Eric Hole. We can't get It'd too be deep. very unfair to him. <laughs> It'd be unfair to him, right? All right, dig us out of this hole. Let's. Uh, what do you want to say about necrophiliac yeah, dogs? <laughs> He's going around saying that if you try to go past naive act utilitarianism, then all of a sudden you're just introducing arbitrary epicycles into your theory. 
I mean, there is an interesting case that could be made in that regard. Unfortunately, he does not make it. But this one particular example that he pulled out of an epic cycle that would need to be added struck me as very weird. He says, are you upset that it would technically increase the net happiness in the universe to let necrophiliacs sexually abuse dead dogs in secret, and therefore you should encourage this practice? And I looked at that sentence, and I'm like, well, first of all, I, I wouldn't necessarily encourage that unless it prevented greater harm. But like... Why would it make me upset if necrophiliacs sexually abuse dead dogs in secret? They're already dead. I'm assuming that they didn't kill the dogs, and it's in secret, so it doesn't, like, hurt anyone else. I think this says more about him than it does about utilitarianism. I think so. I have two things on this. One, Peter Singer wrote an essay that's somewhere on on his blog called uh, Heavy Petting. It could be read to be uh, seen as arguing in favor of having sex with animals, as long as animals aren't hurt by it. What he's really doing, I think, I assume, is pumping your intuition on what is wrong with this actually then. It's kind of one of those kind of fun thought experiments. But in college, I was in an ethics class and we did an ethics bowl where we actually like argued with like panelists from another school. One of the things we had to argue was having child avatars in like an online environment like Sims or whatever, Mm -hmm. like MMO, that you could Mm -hmm. have sex with. Okay. We were assigned the, the question and the position. Let's make it a little more close to home and more real. Like, what is the actual problem with having sex doll children for pedophiles to have sex with? That's similar to the, the Sims question that I had in college. The, the response from the cross-examining professor was like, do you really think that those people would be part of the society you'd want to live in or something? Some vaguely virtue or platonic argument. But it certainly wasn't an argument from like, wouldn't that be bad? Which society would you rather live in? One where, where pedophiles are afflicted with this horrible malady that will once, I don't know, I have no idea what the base rates are actually for pedophiles who act on their impulses, but with a non-zero rate, abuse and harm children or let them get their urges out in a way that hurts nobody. Yeah. Phrased that way, you sound like a nut job, if, if I dare say, to say, no, <laughs> we should we should never, never let them act on those impulses. Right. We're willing to take the hit in a few raped children here and there. Yeah. What's a few thousand raped as long kids? As- as long yeah, as, as long as there's no sims. Yeah, as, as long as we're not encouraging harmless behavior, we're okay with a few raped kids. Yeah, it's 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 nutter butters. It also it'd be worth doing some research as to whether uh, the sims thing would encourage them to actually offend in real life more or discourage them. Because there are some people that are like, if you enact violence in video games, you're more likely to be violent in real life and similar thing with uh, raping children. And I don't know if either of those things are true at all, but uh, I could at least justify doing some research first. Yes, that's exactly, I think, what sets evidence-based ethics apart from a feelings-based one, right? Yeah. If it turned out that, oh man, we did some small experiments or we just let this loose in the wild and rates of actual abuse went up. uh, Oh shit. Okay. Well, we changed our minds. We don't like this approach then. We'll try something else. We're not like stuck with this because we thought it was the best idea. We tried it because we thought it would work. So we're not dogmatic about it. Anyway, you said he confuses utility with happiness. Yeah, that's just a note, but endemic to this entire essay is that he confuses the concept of utility with a person feeling happy. (laughs) And uh, those are not the same thing. There was an example in the the podcast, must be fabricated just for the sake of ease. We've got a factory in Idaho that makes brooms. We learned that we can make them overseas for less money. So we shut the factory down, make them overseas, and now everyone who buys a broom saves two bucks. And there's only like a thousand people out of a job. The cool thing about this is like, they're just talking money. Russ is an economist and he's like, there's more to losing a job than just the loss of money. Mm-hmm. And like, that's true. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's terrifying having your life upended and uncertainty and stuff. But then, like, is he really arguing that we should keep inflated 
price factories here just for jobs and people should pay more because it gives more people jobs. Yeah. He, he doesn't, in fact, argue that. He doesn't like the argument from economic utility of over the course of everyone buying a broom, we come out well on top of dollars saved versus dollars lost of people who lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. He says he doesn't find that argument compelling, but he does he does agree with that it's fine to move the factory, but he doesn't, he doesn't say why. But I'm really curious what, what his why could be if it's not because it saves the buyer's money. Maybe it's because it improves the conditions in Bengal as well. Maybe the vast increase of human utility in Bengal is worth the local decrease in America where people are better able to weather such a decrease and don't lose as much utility as the Bengalis gain. That's the argument in favor of, of uh, sweatshops. And as long as it's not like the terrible sweatshops or your chains to your desk, I'm in favor of it. Yeah. Like yeah. it sucks. But when a kid goes to work at a factory so they don't pay the bills, the alternative is them not being able to do that and then not being able to pay their bills. It's a shit situation that's being exploited by people, but it's like, it's the situation where we've got. So as long as they're actually choosing to work there, it's it's kind of yeah, like, yeah. you know, no, like, I, like I, Walmart I, moving to the neighborhood and people are always like, oh no, it's going to come here and ruin local business. It's like, that's because your local business charges $15 for something I can get for $3 at Walmart. So like, yeah, I'm going to get the cheap one. Why on earth? Like I'm all for short supporting mom and pop shops, but it's not at the cost of breaking the bank. Plus, think of how many bread nets I could buy with all that saved money. So, <laughs> <laughs> There we go. This is the repugnant conclusion that we're coming back to. So many alive children. Well, have you seen kids? They can be really snotty and gross. That's true. No manners. Running around and farting everywhere. <laughs> I don't think I pulled out anything else after the Yudkowsky quotes. The rest is on you if you want to run through. And then, then I want to talk just briefly about the end. Let's go to the end then. The next thing I have pulled out here is, I understand this will be hard to hear of the sound of this much criticism, so I'm emphasizing it. Effective altruists add a lot of good to the world. And then he goes on to praise effective altruism for quite a while. Does this mean that this post is a moral crime because he's trying to destroy a lot of good in the world? What what is going on here? I actually have no idea. He does like this weird 170 degree turn. He's like, I love the effective altruism community. They pay to support a lot of cool things that aren't usually seen like as charities. They pay for things like existential risk, uh, AI research. And as you, you've you been involved with, writing good effective altruist, I was going to say propaganda, but um, thought-provoking <laughs> stories slash propaganda. I like propaganda. Yeah. yeah, that works. Propagandizing isn't bad if it's for a good cause. Sure. An effective altruist apparently even gave him some funding. That's right. And I'm not like finding this piece of dirt on him. He links to it in the post. It, oh, yeah. The, the prize from the EA organization was 20 grand. I thought it was one. Yeah, he goes on at length about how great EAs are, how they seek out self-criticism, how they do so much good in the world. I don't get how he can be. This is an organization that has poison at its core, coursing through its veins. You know, everyone is corrupted by this philosophy, but they're the group doing the most good in the world. And I really love them. And man, the world's better off with them around. Like, dude, what the fuck even? And he wraps it up. Basically, he he likes rebranding some of the stuff because I guess he thinks utilitarianism is just this like, again, the worst thing ever. And what everybody's like, you know, calling it long termism is actually a good move. The last line is what I'm saying is that in terms of flavor, a little utilitarianism goes a long ways. And my suggestion is that effective altruists should dilute, 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 dilute until everyone can drink. I actually disagree with that. I don't even know what that means. Let's dilute it to the point where it is obviously just as effective to give to the the Pink Ribbon Foundation as it is to give to bed nets. Because, you know, it, it's just all about how you feel anyway, man, right? If you're going to dilute it so much, as he says, until everyone everywhere can drink it, then you've just made like the most blasé, universally acceptable ethics in the world. And like, and no one's going to be challenged by it. 
if you dilute it to the point where people feel equally happy to give $5 to the local opera house as they are <laughs> to give orphans in Bengal, then you've literally destroyed effective altruism. There is no more effective altruism. There's just the same old bullshit we had before elective altruism was invented. Yeah, I Effective agree. altruism, yeah. <sighs> it's nice to get that out of my system. Yeah, he's like, let's dilute it until it's dead. It's not even that like, I'm that emotionally attached to EA. It's that I, I am somewhat attached to it, and seeing such disingenuous, shitty arguments irks me to no end. In this like later end section, he starts going back to shitting on EA again because I guess he just can't help himself. <laughs> he says that like being an EA is like you're seeking out trolley problems and becoming a serial killer surgeon. You are suddenly actively out on the streets looking to solve problems rather than simply being presented with a lever. First of all, what is that magical thinking bullshit? When has anyone ever simply been presented with a lever in the real world? When but a homeless also, person asks you for money. Thank you. Yes. He is comparing you, you're out on the streets seeking out levers, uh, analogizing to these surgeons stalking in the alleys for victims. He's using this as an analogy for spending charity dollars in third world countries rather than in the suburbs that you live in. Just a, one sentence above this. Why? People are seeking out third world countries to give money to. Isn't that disgusting, Stephen? That's the thing is like the levers you're presented with are the people outside the grocery store with like the little bell trying to give you to give the Salvation Army or homeless person asking for money. You have to go look for the levers that you can pull that can do the most good. It's almost like the effective altruism movement is trying to make some levers and put them out in the streets so that people can run into them and pull them. Disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> so th there was a part near the end here, which I'm kind of reluctant to bring up. But I mean, I guess we've been talking about this whole thing anyway. He starts saying about effective altruists, well, there's lots of billionaires that don't give much to charity. And surely assassinating one or two would prompt the others to give more. Think of how many lives in Bengal you'd save. And really, is pulling a trigger of a gun that different to pulling a lever? This feels like it's getting right up to the edge of blood libel, in my opinion. To be saying that effective altruists want to murder you, so watch out. That's literally just spreading lies in order to, to make them a socially acceptable victim for violence. I can see that interpretation of it. I'm not crediting him with being that sneaky and vitriolic about it, but I think well, I think that he's saying, here's the obviously repugnant thing that it's implying, right? And why is that such a bad thing? He then says, effective altruists themselves are basically utility monsters. Aren't they out there maximizing the good? So aren't their individual lives worth more? Isn't one effective altruist, by their own philosophy, worth what? Perhaps 20 normal people? Could a really effective one be worth 50? This is literally diving right into the blood libel. Yeah, it's it's the thing is, I kind of agree with him. Bill Gates is worth 50 of me and the amount of good that he can do. But that's not saying that he should kill 50 of me. It's I just, think that is what he is implying, that effective altruists think that they are much better than regular humans and would kill regular humans in order to save themselves or whatever, it to, could, to further for their philosophy. It could be. I, I think that he, he's giving effective altruists like, less credit than that and saying they don't realize that this is where their, their thoughts lead. If, if, they, if, they, just, not, if they just woke up and, and paid attention, they would see this. That's not giving someone much credit to be like, they're too stupid to realize that they're Nazis, but if you give them enough IQ points to consider their own philosophy, they'll all turn into Nazis. Uh, no, fuck that. I think that is the point he's making, and it's, and it's that dumb and empty. I don't consider that dumb and empty. I consider that attempting to get people killed. Well, hopefully the people who read his blog aren't super into that. So, But, you know, the downside is, is like somebody read this, and it was their first exposure to EA. You and they're like, man, what a bunch of fucking nutjobs. I don't think this guy is going to be anyone's first exposure to EA. 
Yeah, I don't know. I I didn't like seek out some random shitty anti-EA argument and just want to pick on like the easiest target. This guy came across my radar through perfectly sane channels. It was just something I've been wanting to talk about for a while. When I was Googling this to find the actual essay, I came across the post to it on the EA forum. So I'm planning to read that at length now too. Then I want to read the contest winner, whoever won that $20,000. I want to read their their essay because I am actually really curious what the good arguments are because I know these ain't it. You find out at the very end that he works in the science of consciousness. So that explains a lot. Does it? Yes. <laughs> it's a fake science. <laughs> Shots fired. It's like philosophy. <laughs> That's what he says about how he's like, I'm not a philosopher, but I'm pretty immersed in it because I study consciousness stuff. That said, just to get back to humanizing people and stuff, I think there's very few people that I could not enjoy a conversation with over dinner. No, I take that back. There's lots of people that I've not enjoyed conversations with, but yeah, there's very few, very few people I can't find some common ground with, even when we disagree, if they're willing to, to engage. You know, honestly, I believe in my ability as a conversational partner to have a good dinner with 99.9% of people that I can speak the language with. That's great. I think I've, I've just met people that like I know I wouldn't have fun talking to if we would talk about everything they wanted to talk about the whole time. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I got to steer things. But yeah. like, I've even had decent conversations with someone who wanted to murder a billion people. I thought that was pretty impressive of me. I'll say, I had a similar conversation in the wee days of this podcast, and I didn't enjoy it. Although I like to think okay. I've grown since then. I certainly think I have because I was emotionally incensed at that argument, and I think less mature at being attentive to that. If nothing else, you have grown enough to not have a person that you're going to be that incensed with on the podcast. <laughs> yep. You know, if the opportunity presents itself, I'd like to talk with Eric. I'm not like the best spokesperson for EA, but I'd be curious. Maybe I could get him to say like, oh, yeah, my problem is utilitarianism in its dumbest form, not effective altruism. But it seems like he's not willing to cede that ground. And I don't know why. Maybe because he didn't want to change the title of the post. Probably it comes down to he wanted $20,000. That might be it. Although I think he'd be <laughs> there's, there's a lot of utility in $20,000. I'm assuming he didn't win. One last thing. After all this talk about uh, cruddy EA criticism, I wanted to toss out a resource for good EA stuff. Ozzy Brennan, uh, we recently did an episode on the the Rationalists and the Cultic Milieu yeah. blog post. Yeah, uh, that's Ozzy's at Thing of Things. Uh, Ozzy puts out a lot of good stuff about EA, the EA scene, uh, criticisms of EA, and also things where EA is awesome and places where criticisms are wrong. A much more comprehensive and knowledgeable take on the EA situation and what is good and what is lacking about it over at thingofthings.substack. Awesome. We'll definitely put that in the show notes too. Well, you know, speaking of utilitarianism. Let's jump into this week's Less Wrong Posts. Woo. First one, coincidentally, is the intuitions behind utilitarianism. Intuitions and utilitarianism are in quotes. No, no, no. Isn't the first one circular altruism? Yes. Did I get them reversed? You're right. My tab thing opened them in the other order. The oh, first okay. one is actually circular altruism. <laughs> We're running in circles already. Yep. These are the examples I'd want to pitch to Eric to ask him what his thoughts are. Ah, okay. So, well, the examples, two examples given right up at the top is you can save 400 lives with certainty or save 500 lives with 90% probability, or save no lives with 10% probability. Uh, most people choose option one, 400 lives with certainty. Eliezer thinks this is foolish because the probabilities give you an expected value of 450 lives if you go with the 90% 500 lives thing. He then says, if you tell people there's some kind of terrible plague happening, 100 people are just going to die, period, with certainty. Or there's an option two, there's a 90% chance that nobody dies, but a 10% chance that 500 people die. Uh, Then most people choose option two. 
even though it's the same gamble. This is a great distillation of the, um, and you know, it says follow up to the previous post or whatever, but the, the zoo to lay and the, um, it was called Dutch booking when we talked about it at the meetup, but I'm not sure why it was called that. Like the making inconsistent bets and being able to sell them back to the person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this is a perfect example of that because this isn't money. And these are numbers that I'm totally on board with. I'm like, oh yeah, no, he's totally right. He could even move the, the, the percentages one point each way and have me be able to trade more and more dead people to keep making the, the emotionally right bet. Uh, huh. And so, so you would have gone with option one and then option two. I think I would have until like I thought about it. Um, okay. but, but what I'm saying is that if I was the if I had fallen for the Dutch booking, I would have done the same thing here. Um, yeah. You know, that said, just to, you know, talk about the importance of feelings and stuff, there might be something just about what you can live with. Yeah. I, like I saved these 400 people, but if you did hit the 10% and lost the five, the 500, you might, you know, you'd be like, they're dead because of me. I could have saved 80% of those people. Um, right. Okay. That that said, because humans aren't in these situations, it's kind of just, you know, fun to think about. If I ever was somehow, I would like to think that hopefully I could sleep at night saying, I made the right probabilistic choice. I almost saved 500 people. I don't think you could. I, I personally find that a really interesting thing in fiction uh, when I run across it and less interesting in real life because I don't want to <laughs> think about real people having these issues. But there are times when people uh, will make the probabilistically correct choice and just the odds break against them. And then they they do not have usually as portrayed in the fiction and from what I hear in real life, they do not have the ability to say, well, I made the correct choice and feel good about it at night. They torture themselves with it for, you know, the rest of the novel until they have their, their big character arc at the end or whatever. Uh, and I don't know how many years in real life. And uh, that really sucks. Yeah. I think, I think you're probably right. Just with human psychology, it's, it's fun because it's easier to do with money every year. I waste money on insurance because I never use it, but it's still, you know, it's such a small amount and it it could save me a fortune. So yeah, I have whatever fire insurance or something, even though I've never seen a house fire. Oh wait. Yes, I have. Uh, but I've never been in one that was mine. It's, it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's easy to sleep with that kind of loss every, every night, uh, when it's just money. But yeah, when it's dead people, I think that that's a whole other thing. And that's an important thing about being a person. I wouldn't want to sacrifice that. I think this is one of the reasons that societies do valorize their military dead. Because when you send your son or your lover or your brother off to war, you know you're doing the right thing for society. Assuming, of course, it's a just war and et cetera, all that. But uh, if you truly believe in the cause, this is the right thing to do. And if you're... If your loved one comes back, you're like, oh, thank God everything worked out. If they don't, like if you were the dad who said to his son, son, you should go fight in this war because it is for the good of the country. And then your son is dead. Like the rest of your life, you just have to think I did the correct thing. If I, if everybody had said, no, son, you should stay home because I want you to live. Or like when you always see in the movie, the the girlfriend is like, don't go to the war. I, I can't lose you, you know, and then the guy goes off to the war anyway. <laughs> if everybody listened to their girlfriend and stayed home, then the Nazis would rule the earth and you can't be having that. But then you have to live with, did I kill my son by telling him to go to the war? And I guess I did. Valorizing the war dead really can help with that. If everybody around you is saying, you did the right thing anyway, this sucks that you lost your son, but man, you made a sacrifice for us, then then it's easier to live with that kind of thing. 
Yeah, I certainly see how it became, you know, societally important. And also, you just kind of like want to positive, positively reinforce the behavior of serving your country. So uh, that's, I think, what a good reason. I, I guess I just talked myself into this right now. A good reason to valorize and help positively reinforce anybody who does make expected utilities uh, the correct choices, uh, especially if they lose on them, even when they were the correct ones. Well, like, consider the, consider the second choice here. If you were presented with the second one, and you get to press a button where 100 people die, or... Uh, well, not press a button, whatever. Close the emergency gates before the monsters came in or something. Left 100 people outside. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or leave them open in time for everyone to run in and maybe the monster gets in too. Most people choose option two. Which of those options keeps you up at night which, with which outcome, right? Like, do, yeah. do, you, do you sleep great closing the door early knowing that, you know, you condemned some people to die, but you saved the rest? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, you do not sleep great. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the question. Either... Everyone gets in and the doors close and you're a hero or the monster get in and you die. So you don't have to worry about not sleeping because you're dead. You're on the second level of this facility behind a, a <laughs> impenetrable glass glass wall. Uh, oh, you, you just okay, get to okay. watch the outcome. Shit. I don't make sure there's a suicide weapon nearby. Right. <laughs> I mean, if this goes sideways, I'm blowing my brains out. There'll be 501 dead if, if they don't all make it. Uh, not much consolation for the families of those other 500 people, though. No. This actually puts your ethics to the test. And well, I say actually, but it doesn't because this is a, you know, an absurd hypothetical, right? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Which is part of the fun of it. Like there there aren't actual stakes here. Uh, Yeah. We don't really live in these situations. What we do, and this is another thing I should have mentioned about that came up uh, Econ Talk episode, that you must use the word certainty 10 times. That's that's why they don't give to real charities because they're like, oh, well, I don't know where the money's being spent. Oh, you do know how your local opera house is spending it though? Give me a break. They, I mean, I do. It's mostly cocaine and caviar. Right. <laughs> but you don't need certainty. You need yeah. a good probability. You know, all right, how much would you, how much would you, then, then like, I just wish I could have just interjected in their conversation be like, all right, how much would I need to, how much would you want to give for a probability of saving a kid? And what would mm-hmm. that probability have to be for it to be like sufficient to satisfy you? Certainly there's gotta be some number, five bucks for the probability of saving a hundred kids for a 90% chance of saving a hundred kids. Yeah. Is that enough? Like, yeah. anyway, we're not talking about that anymore. I can, I can stop being mad. Let's talk about this. When you said, could I live with myself if the dice broke against me? It brought it back to your feelings about the matter, right? And the next line that I pulled out of this is <laughs> Eliezer saying, you know what? This isn't about your feelings. A human life with all its joys and all its pains adding up over the course of decades is worth far more than your brain's feelings of comfort or discomfort with a plan which I thought was an amazing way to just cut through everything and get right to what actually matters here. And then he says, does computing the expected utility feel too cold-blooded for your tastes? Well, that feeling isn't even a feather in the scales when a life is at stake. Just shut up and multiply. Uh, Which, in addition to being a very emotionally compelling argument that I love and quoted for that reason, Hole actually quoted that exact line in his post. It isn't even a feather on the scales, just shut up and multiply. And he acted like doing that was the wrong thing. Yep. Again, if you're comparing uh, hiccups and girls eaten by sharks, fine. But then again, pick a harder target. Pick this one. Then what? That's exactly my, my gripe with it. Don't knock down the easy case and pretend like you won. And maybe the easy case isn't as easy as you're making it out to be, but even if... Yeah, he has a quick summary that when you trade sacred values against unsacred values, subjects will express great indignation, <laughs> which I believe was basically the entire poll- post that we read earlier. Yeah, well, taboo trade-offs. 
Um, mm-hmm. People hate the idea of having to, you know, weigh money against lives. But it's like, guess what? That's some people's jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, In fact, I think you pulled a note about weighing money against lives. Yeah, it, it opens with a. Uh, or he says, my favorite anecdote along these lines, though my books are packed at the moment, so no citation for now. I think it's funny because I think he used that excuse before. It for, might, it yeah, might be the same move, actually. Ago. Yeah, for him, it was like a day or two. You're right. <laughs> this is probably the same week that he was moving. Yeah, the team of researchers who evaluated the effectiveness of a certain project, calculating the cost per life saved and recommended that the government or recommended to the government that the project be implemented because it would was cost effective. The governmental agency rejected the report because they said you couldn't put a dollar value on a human life. After rejecting the report, the agency decided not to implement the measure. Jesus. And, you know, w- with no details on that, I can just, you know, fill in random blanks, but it's totally not hard to imagine, right? You can't put a dollar value on human lives. That's why we're not going to spend any dollars to save human lives. That's gross of you to even imply. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, yeah, we, you can't quantify it, so we're just not going. We're not, we're not even going to pretend to try. But yeah. let's get to the actual numbers of the situation here. Yeah. If we're talking about hiccups versus sharks, uh, Eliezer calls back to his torture versus suspects post and uh, how, how many people, you know, were incensed in the same way that hole was incensed. He says, all right, all right. Suppose you had to choose between one person being tortured for 50 years or a Google people being tortured for 50 years minus one second. <laughs> <laughs> you would choose one person being tortured for 50 years. I do presume. Otherwise I give up on you. What's fun is my mental model of both Russ Roberts and uh, Eric Hole are they they would reply like I reject your question. Uh, I huh. think that's repugnant of you to ask because there's no other answer to give other than you're right. We should we should shut up and multiply. And if you're going to say that's a terrible line of thinking that you should never engage in, then you've you've got nothing else to do but just dig your feet in and say that's a gross question. I mean, I guess that's fair. The correct answer is find out where this torturer is and stop him from torturing people, but. You know, that's also kind of dodging the whole point of the analogy. Yeah. If you don't like thought experiments, then this just isn't for you. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I actually don't know what they would say. I would have to think because they're, they don't seem like idiots or psychopaths that they would say, yeah, okay, in that case, I would definitely choose it. Like, okay, well, then let's just move the numbers down one second per, you know, additional l- Google people. Yeah. And let, let's let's find how, wh- where you draw the line. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we can even scale back, the, you know, the word torture to getting a limb cut off versus getting uh, all of your limbs cut off or something, right? Let's just actually find your line in the sand. And then, oh, look, would you look at that? It is arbitrary because there's there's really nowhere else to do it because you can't calculate the exact utils of losing all your limbs versus losing one. The idea here isn't to get the mathematically correct answer and thus we've proved it with a mathematical theorem that is unchallengeable. That's not how this works. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea is given where we're at and our best guess, and our best guess is pretty good, it's, the best, it's literally the best we can do. That's why it's called our best guess. That's what we should do. <sighs> I'm still apparently uh, emotionally charged. He goes on to say that then you can scale that down by having a Google people tortured for 50 years minus one second or a Google squared number of people being tortured for 50 years minus two seconds. <laughs> and hopefully, again, you would choose the former because even though it's one second more of torture, it's uh, a Google squared number less people amount of people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, to square Google less. Um, yeah, and eventually you can just keep squaring the number of people and reducing by one second until eventually you get to torture for like a tenth of a second or whatever the equivalent of a dust speck in your eye with an unimaginably large number of people. And you should, in that case, uh, still prefer the more torture to less people than the less torture to more people. Checkmate, atheists. 
<laughs> I mean, kind he of, says, right? You, yeah, yeah. He's totally. like, look, y'all think I'm insane for making this point, but let me just prove it to you another way. You know, you, you tell me where you're going to stop. Uh, th- there is nowhere else. I mean, I think the primary problem is people can't imagine numbers that large. Like when you say a Google number of people versus one people, I can kind of imagine that. And I understand why the one ex- one less second of torture doesn't make up for the extra Google number of people. And even Google squared, I can sort of, I can think about it enough to like realize why, uh, why the two seconds less torture isn't enough to make up for uh, that many more people. But eventually you get to numbers so big where I'm just like, uh, my brain stopped and sorry, brain. My brain stopped. My brain stops being able to do anything like the appropriate math in the hundreds. I mean, okay. I, I can read a Google. I could even, I can even look at the number if you wrote it out, but I have no scale for what that, what that anything in the universe that even approximates to that order of magnitude. I think nothing. I- I personally cannot comprehend a number of people so large that I would prefer 50 years of torture for one person over a tenth of a second for any number of people, just because I, I can't imagine that that larger number. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ellie Eisler. Well, My brain is not up to the task. I don't think his, I mean, his might be, because, you know, he's got a, it's going to say a, a super hard brain, but then there's a Brooklyn Nine-Nine joke about that. I don't, I don't think he can actually emotionally compute that, right? Because because he's, oh. he's got he's got he's got a regular human meat brain, but what he can do is understand the basic math involved and be like, look, numbers. Yeah, trust the numbers. Right. Shut up and multiply. Yeah, it's, it doesn't it doesn't matter that you can like actually emo- emotionally register the proper heaviness of the suffering. That's that's not the goal here. The goal is just to you, you don't need to actually engage the numbers emotionally. You need to engage with them intellectually and make the right call. Yeah, that's because I I'm a I'm not a chimp. Oh, yeah. Chimpanzees feel, but they don't multiply. Should you be sad that you have the opportunity to do better? You cannot attain your full potential if you regard your gift as a burden. Hell yeah. Oh, and also just before this, he said, um, altruism isn't the warm, fuzzy feeling you get from being altruistic. If you're doing it for the spiritual benefit, that is nothing but selfishness. The primary thing is to help others, whatever that means. The other way might feel better inside you, but it wouldn't work. So, yeah. That the reason effective altruism is effective altruism is because it actually cares about helping others rather than feeling better. It's actually altruistic rather than selfish. Eric Hole. <laughs> I um, hope we're not mispronouncing his name. I think that's how Russ said it. Um, okay, cool. This is the thing with um, Kantian deontology. You're supposed to do stuff out of respect for your duty, or basically out of, out of an understanding of your duty as a rational agent, mm. and that it's your duty to give to a charity, but if you, you're not supposed to feel good doing it. And if you do, that kind of like taints your, your, the, the duty aspect of it. Uh, See, I think that's bullshit. Fuck can't. It's nice I, when you feel good doing good things. That That's actually, and I think that was one of the things on the EA forum replies too, but that was one of my kickbacks to uh, Eric's whole post is like any ethic reduced to the absurd is absurd. The Kantian deontologist wouldn't, would, would be like, yes, right this way. And Frank's right here in the attic. <laughs> you know, so I, that, that, that's actually an example he gives, or not not Kant, but this is an example in deontological in deontolo- deontological essays. Kant is like famously inscrutably hard to read. Um, okay, but that's the thing is you're not supposed to lie no matter what. It's actually that stupid if you take it at its stupidest. There's there's a non stupid version of the ontology, but just like with everything, taken to the dumbest version, it's guess what? It's dumb. <laughs> Okay, what are these intuitions behind utilitarianism? <laughs> Next post, intuitions behind utilitarianism. 
Eliezer talks about like intuitions and he says, I see the project of morality as a project of renormalizing intuitions. We have intuitions about things that seem desirable or undesirable, intuitions about actions that are right or wrong, intuitions about how to resolve conflicting intuitions, intuitions about how to systematize specific intuitions into general principles. Delete all the intuitions and you aren't left with an ideal philosopher of perfect emptiness. <laughs> You're left with a rock. I, I forgot about that phrase until we were reading this. And I always liked that a lot. The ideal philosopher of perfect emptiness. It's, it's just, it, it paints a good picture. Yeah. A lot of what utilitarianism is trying to do is not boil things down to their ridiculous naivety. Um, they're trying to push intuitions in a more formalized direction. You, you can say, we are not being utilitarian enough. We are giving money to the opera. Let's be a little more utilitarian and renormalize intuitions that way without going all the way to let's start harvesting people for their organs. Yeah. I think refining intuitions to be, you know, the best version of, to be the most consistent and best version is is kind of the whole point of ethics. Um, you know, you have to have things to care about. It's just the bedrock. That is one of the things that Eric argues with some um with a little um, i was a little more amenable to his argument that utilitarianism loses a lot of its teeth when you start being more complex and nuanced that like oh it's not just flat numbers and pulling a lever it's all these other considerations and how they affect the greater society and so forth and i mean yeah sure it does in fact uh lose some of its emotional power once you start being more complex and and actually applying it to the real world. Part of the power is just, you know, what's more important, your shoes or this girl's life. But when we're at this far extreme where people are giving money to opera houses rather than saving lives, you don't need to get into the really detailed, nuanced, complicated theory of why if various virtues and desires are pushed out to the rest of society, they will have greater net effects on everyone's life. You can just simply say, this is stupid from the very basic naive utilitarianism even. Uh, don't do that. And it's obvious to any kindergartner because we're just so far on the side away from utilitarianism. We don't need to get into all this other stuff. And he says, yeah, well, if you extrapolate that out all the way, then you get terrible effects. And we're like, yeah, that's true. We don't extrapolate it out all the way. We just want to use the basic naive stuff to push us even slightly away from the retarded place we are in right now. Yeah, I haven't encountered like, maybe it's because I don't read enough, you know, poorly written essays, but I haven't seen like a reducto engaged with that much length and uh, enthusiasm in a long time. Yeah, the dumbest version of this is dumb. Wouldn't you know it? Again, great, great tweet. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> need to be an essay. Um, yeah. Anyway. Conversely, if you keep your intuitions and refuse to build upon the reflective ones, then you aren't left with an ideal philosopher of perfect spontaneity and genius. You're left with a grunting cave person running in circles. <laughs> so what are we to do? He ponders that a little bit. He's replying to someone in a previous comment in this, it sounds like. He says the other person unfortunately doesn't say what utilitarian is, what utilitarianism is. So he says, does utilitarianism say these seven things and gives a list of seven things. One of them I pulled out, number three, the probabilities of consequences should normatively be discounted by their probability. So a 50% probability of something bad should weigh exactly half as much in our trade-offs. 
He's like, is that one of the principles of utilitarianism? Maybe. He said that he agreed with that one specifically, which is why I pulled it out. But it's not just that someone presented me with a list of statements like the above, and I decided which one sounded intuitive, in quotes. Among other things, if you try to violate utilitarianism, you run into paradoxes, contradictions, circular preferences, and other things that aren't symptoms of moral wrongness, so much as moral incoherence. So one of the things he seems to be saying about utilitarianism here is that a lot of the value of it isn't like things that are morally right or morally wrong. It's just being coherent over time and among your preferences. I I think that he's exactly right. And this is this is why I'm sympathetic to a consequentialist based ethics. Like, again, the deontologist has moral incoherence in that, you know, you should never hurt people because it's violating their sanctity is not the word they had used, but um, their importance as, as a rational agent. But, you know, yeah, by all means tell, tell the Nazis where Anne Frank is. Cause you can't lie either. Like if you're, if your whole ethics is based around like rights, it's like, all right, well, my right to drive on the wrong side of the road, you can't infringe on my, my freedom. That also mm-hmm. gets stupid really fast. It, it, even if you follow utilitarianism all the way to repugnancy, at least it's consistent. Uh, you don't even have to go all the way to the bottom to the, to the repugnant parts. We're at least not just chasing our tails here. Yeah, he says, I've drawn a conceptual separation between questions of type, where should we go? And questions of type, how should we get there? Our intuitions about where to go are arguable enough, but our intuitions about how to get there are frankly messed up. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I mean, we're not optimized for the world we live in. Giving to, to effective charities, I mean, I suppose it feels good if I knew what feeling good felt like. Um, but like, it, it doesn't feel like helping somebody, helping a stranger in need when you see it. Mm-hmm. You can go and bask in the glow of that for a while. But just having, you know, an auto draft out of your account every month, at least I don't feel anything. Yeah. I forget about it until it, any, until it comes up. We're not morally calibrated to be attentive to the importance of people that aren't near us. Yeah. But like what, their proximity makes them matter less? That seems incoherent and insane. So yeah. no, our, our intuitions are just wrong there. I pulled this out because it was really cute. The worst case of scope insensitivity I've ever heard of was described here by Slovak. Uh, he quotes a thing about people donated more to... Slovic, about people donated more to save one child than to save eight. And he says, I'm just presenting one example, because, you know, eight examples would probably have less impact. (laughs) (laughs) It was a beautiful way to tie it right into what we are reading at the moment, and probably true. And I love that he is implementing what he has learned in his actual post, even though it might feel like this would be more compelling if I were to give more examples, but apparently not. So I'm just going to stop at the one. He's being he's being smarter with his uh, ability to actually persuade and inform, and he's being more effective. One might say he's being more effective, not not just by not inundating us with examples to the point where we become immune to them, but it's more brief and funny. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a hat trick right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nailed it. Due to this, you know, one being more important than eight, he says now you could look at this intuition and think it was revealing some kind of incredible deep moral truth. Or, and I skipped ahead here, or you can look at that and say, the intuition is wrong. The brain can't successfully multiply by eight and get a larger quantity (laughs) than it started with. But it ought to, normatively speaking. That's exactly why, you know, when we talked in the terms of Googles of humans and stuff, where I'm just like, no, man, I give up at hundreds. But that's only because I can can imagine hundreds of people. Hmm. But I can't even math out how much worse it would be for 150 people to be whatever kicked in the balls than it is for 120 right (laughs) Right. like i I can math it out but i can't emotionally i can't emotionally engage with that math 
Frank, right. the thing is, I think that our, our brains just aren't equipped to do it. And I think anyone who says that they can up to like, you know, whatever millions, I think they're just wrong. Cause then you yeah. just like imagine a natural disaster. And if they, if that person can actually feel the suffering of all those people, you know, and they can simulate it in their minds, they would be either a God or just a complete wreck. Right. Yeah. But you don't have to emotionally, you know, register it that deeply. I, I keep saying that, but I just, to me, that's a salient point. Yeah. Says when you've reflected on enough intuitions and corrected enough absurdities, you start to see a common denominator, a meta principle at work, which one might phrase as shut up and multiply. <laughs> I love his, uh, this isn't even combative. My, my mental model of him right now is, you know, it's, it's, it's good natured and he's like kind of having like a grin about it, but you, you could use this in an actual like heated argument. Mm-hmm. And I, I, whenever he does things like that, it's, it, I always find it like his, the ammunition he could use in real arguments, like really cutting and typically funny. This is a great point and he's not doing it to get a good dig in and win, but if he was, it would. And that, that that's yeah. the fun part of it. You might, yeah, you might so. say the phrase that I've been saying all the time. <laughs> it's almost like I'm onto something here. All right. Well, for next time, I believe we are going to be continuing in this vein. The next two less strong posts will be trust in bays and something to protect. Awesome. That second one sounds sure sounds familiar. Oh my God. It's one of the best ones. Oh, I'm kidding. Well, I'm, I'm saying, cause it's the, it's the name of the last like 10 chapters of methods of rationality too. Oh, good point. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's one of my it's it yeah, it's one of my most favorite. I'm looking forward to it. You know, you, you were saying about how you have an uh, auto draft out of your account to a charity and that just doesn't feel like anything and you kind of forget about it. But that is pretty darn effective. That is probably, you know, the most effective way to donate because then you don't forget to do it every month. And, and I wouldn't uh, feel a, and I don't feel the sting of losing the money either. That right? too. Yeah. So uh, th- there is a way to do that, have an auto draft out of your account to support people doing things that you might believe in called Patreon. <laughs> and we have one of those Smooth. Patreons that will auto draft your account and uh, help support us. But we do want it to feel like something sometimes, like it shouldn't always feel like nothing, which is why we thank a patron every episode so that somebody out there can feel can have their moment where they feel special for doing a good thing and so that we can honestly appreciate them and be like thank you this really does help us and we want you to know about it hell yeah so in that spirit this week townsend cooper is uh this episode's shout out funder supporter yeah you're the hero who made this episode happen so absolutely there we go i hope you found this valuable i like to think that we do good and not just have fun here so uh thank you for for your support it means a lot yes thank you townsend (laughs) cooper we appreciate you Totally. And our Patreon rewards, as they're listed on the website, aren't much. It's hard to think of anything creative to do, you know, because making extra content is actually kind of burdensome. So we do release stuff that's only for patrons, but like putting out an extra episode every month or something is actually quite a lot. But yeah. anything you can think of, any any patron at all, message on on uh, the app or uh, email us or whatever. And uh, any anything you can do within reason, we'll try and, try and satisfy because we owe you guys. All right. Thank you, everybody. Stephen, is there anything else or should we sign off? No, that's it. Appreciate it. I will see you in two weeks. Peace out, y'all. Thanks. See ya.